Well, good morning, everybody. I'm uh, Michael Flake, one of the pastors here. Great to be together as a church family. We're excited for the second annual uh, barbecue there with Gethsemane. Last year, the CVS in Davidson had its best aloe sale ever after the barbecue was over. So, a word to the wise. Wear the baseball cap if you need to. Um, uh, and uh, one of our other traditions we have that we are continuing every year, we ask the graduating seniors of Davidson College to sign a t-shirt. This will be our seventh such t-shirt. We hang them all up in the church office. They are lovely. The t-shirt is right over there in the bleachers. So if you are a graduating Davidson senior and you can remember your name at this point of your academic career, we would love for you to sign the shirt. That would be fabulous. So uh, recently, someone at Lake Forest told me about the day that they became a Christian. They had attended a worship service. After the service, approached someone and said that he would like to follow Christ, like to become a Christian. So that person prayed with him. He committed himself to Christ. And, and then he walked out into an almost empty parking lot, got in his car and said, okay, now what? Maybe you can remember a similar time in your own life, or maybe you or someone you know is there today. I've committed myself to Jesus. I've stepped over the starting line of the Christian faith. Now what? How do I get from where I am to where Jesus really starts to reorient my life? Jesus' first disciples experienced something very similar. After the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus had changed the world, uh, it changed their world like it can change your or my world, the original disciples were left with one question, which was, now what? Where do we go from here? Jesus has changed the world, now what? And they started to fumble towards an answer, and this is where our stories start to run in parallel. We can learn from many of the things that they learned. So, for instance, a couple weeks ago, we saw how the earliest Christians became convinced of the truth of the resurrection. Many of them were actually initially skeptical that the resurrection had really happened, and so they had to go and discover for themselves the truth of the resurrection. And many of us will have a similar experience as part of growing closer to God that we will have to study and become convinced of the truth of Jesus' resurrection. The disciples also began to gather together in community. Dr. Bud talked about this last week, how this small band of disciples began to grow, how not long after the resurrection, there were over 3,000 people who were following the resurrected Jesus. And so they decided, we, we need to, not, as we're getting bigger, we need to get smaller. And so they started to gather together in community. They got together throughout the week to encourage each other and to challenge each other in following Jesus. So today I want to watch how that group continued to grow and expand and change in their thinking. And it's going to answer another now what question. This group of people kept growing Many of them were committed to Jesus. They also made room for people who were exploring the Christian faith. So they created this community that worshipped God, this community that encouraged one another, this community that made room for people who were trying to figure out this whole Jesus thing, who were still investigating Jesus. And within this community, God continued to transform people's lives. I hope that may sound familiar to you. That's kind of what we try to do as a church. And then we learn that the earliest Christians 
decided to use whatever they had to serve the needs of others within the community. The earliest Christians decided to use whatever they had to serve the needs of others within the community. And here specifically, I'm talking about this community of those following Jesus and the spiritual explorers who were among them, the community that we would now call the church. Now, when you make a point like this, there's typically an immediate objection. Time out, objection, which is, but wait a minute, aren't Christians supposed to serve people outside of their church? Aren't Christians supposed to serve the world around them? And the answer is, yes, of course. But what the Bible shows us is that historically, the muscles that we use to serve the world around us are first exercised in learning to serve the people in our church family. Historically, the muscles that we use to serve the people in the world around us are first exercised in learning to serve other people in our church family. Amy read for us earlier from Acts chapter 4. You may remember some of the highlights. Here's one highlight. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Now, sometimes I will hear a person say something like, I wish that I uh, was around during the, the early church, during when the church was first starting. I wish I could find a church as good as the church in Acts chapter 2 or Acts chapter 3 or Acts chapter 4. So if you ever meet someone who feels that way, here is my invitation to them. Encourage them to take the deed to their house and bring it to me. Lay it at my feet and they will feel just like they were there in Acts chapter 4. Because that's what was happening. We also learn this is an example of what happened. Verse 36, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So this is one specific example of how this happened. There's a man named Joseph who is a Levite. What does it mean to be a Levite? Well, if you don't know, that's fine. You, you could Google that. When you're Googling where Gethsemane Baptist is, you could Google what does it mean to be a Levite. Or you may have a Bible that has a footnote that explains it. If you don't have a Bible, you can take the one in the chair as a gift. But I'll just do the work for you today. A Levite was a member of the Jewish priestly class. So this man named Joseph, who is a Levite, is a Jewish religious leader. And yet he has decided to commit himself to Jesus. He's following Jesus. Other Christians start to call him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, because he is so encouraging to other people. So Joseph, who is a Levite, who the Christians start to call Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, because he's so encouraging, owns a field. Sadly, not a field in Davidson. And so he decides to sell this field. He sells the field and he brings the money to the apostles, to Jesus' original disciples, so that they can disperse this money to anyone in the church community who has a need. If you keep reading the book of Acts, you will see Barnabas' name again. Barnabas is actually one of the Christians who first leads this growing community to serve and love and share the good news of Jesus with the broader world. He is one of the 
early Christians who broke the Christians out of their cocoon. But interestingly, the first thing we learn about him is that he sold this field to help anybody in the church who had a need. The muscles that he used to ultimately serve the broader world, he first exercised by serving other people in his church. That's Barnabas. Years later, Peter, who was the ringleader of the early Christians, who was the ringleader of this first church, wrote this. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. I love this because it's a very uh, nice summary from Peter's perspective of what was happening in that first church, that early Christian community. The early community had people with a lot of gifts. They had material possessions. They had skills. They had abilities. If you read the book of Acts, you'll see that they had this very complicated system for how to make sure the widows had enough to eat. So they had people who would administrate this complicated system. This person knew how to preach a sermon. That person was a doctor. Barnabas was good at encouraging people. This person was hospitable. They had gifts upon gifts upon gifts upon gifts. We are the same way. We are a community that has gifts upon gifts upon gifts upon gifts. And Peter's question is, where did the gifts come from? And the answer is they came from God. God has given you gift upon gift upon gift. God has given me gift upon gift upon gift. God has given our church family gift upon gift upon gift. And the Bible word here is that we are the stewards of those gifts. That they belong to God. We are the steward. We are the manager. We are the caretaker of something that ultimately belongs to God. God has put us in charge of these things for the time being. And so to be good stewards, to be good managers, at some level we need to kind of have an inventory of the gifts that we have. If you're put in charge of something, it's generally good to have an inventory of what you've been put in charge of. But not only do we need sort of an inventory, we also need to be able to use these gifts in a way that the rightful owner would want them to be used. In other words, that God would want them to be used. So what does God want? How how does God want the gifts he puts in our lives to be used? Well, Peter is nice enough and he spells it out. God wants people to experience his grace. God wants you to experience His grace. God wants me to experience His grace. God wants everyone to experience His grace. And He wants them to experience His grace in various forms. And so God wants you and God wants me to use the gifts, the money, the skills, the abilities that we have. Use the gifts that He's given us to serve others. That's what we see in Acts chapter 4. It's a community where people were cared for, where people were nurtured, where physical and spiritual needs were met because everyone was pitching in what they had. They were pitching in the gifts that God had given them to the greater cause. And now that's all well and good, but some of you have not heard a word I said since the part about how people gave their houses to the church. 
and you're wondering where this sermon is headed and how close to the exit you reasonably are. Am I about to say that if you're a real Christian, like a good Christian, you're going to sell your house and give all the money to the church? Well, this is when I need to introduce the distinction between a method and a principle. The difference between a method and a principle. As a church, we think a lot about this because we are not trying to tinker with the principles of the Christian faith, but we are very open to tinkering with the methods. The principles stay the same, but the methods change. And if you've been part of Lake Forest Davidson long enough, you've likely seen us change a method in order to reach the same principle. So in Acts chapter 4, the part about people selling their houses and their fields to meet the needs that arose, is that the principle or the method? Is it a bedrock principle for all Christians, or is it a method that some Christians found extremely effective in a certain time and place? My contention is that Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 37, the part about selling their houses to give to needs, is a method. It's a method. Now, it's a method we should learn from. It's a method we should be open to, and it's a method. 1 Peter 4.10 is the principle. The part about each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various form. That's the principle. That's a, a Christian at any point in history, any place in the world today, could look at that and say, okay, that's what God is doing. That's what God wants me to do accordingly. Acts chapter 4 is one of the methods by which a church went after the principle of 1 Peter 4. Now, it happened to be the first church and a very important church, but it was a method by which they went after the principle. So why am I so confident that the part about selling the houses and fields is a method and not a principle? Because it's mentioned nowhere else in the Bible. Like nowhere in the, else in the New Testament does anyone ever reference selling a house or a field for these sorts of things. Of all the things in the New Testament, of all the writers in the New Testament, outside of a, these few little passages in Acts, it never comes up. And then, a few decades after all that happened, there's Paul, Paul's another Christian leader, and he writes the following to the church in Corinth. Corinth is in modern-day Greece. Paul writes this, Now, about the collection for the Lord's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of the week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up, so that when I come, no collection will have to be made. Then, when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. It would be natural to ask at this moment, what in the world does that have to do with what we were just talking about? Give me a minute. I'm going to unwind it for a little bit, and it'll make sense, I hope, and hopefully I'll do it fast enough we can still beat the Methodist to Denny's, because I know that's important to you, that we get out in time for that. So the earliest Christian community, the earliest church was where? The earliest church was in Jerusalem. That's where Jesus died, that's where Jesus resurrected, and that's where the first group began to follow Jesus. Eventually, though, Paul 
starts to starts new churches throughout the Roman Empire, but mostly on the northern part of the Mediterranean Sea. So years later, Paul writes to these churches on the northern side of the Mediterranean Sea and says, we need to take up an offering, and what are we going to do with that offering? We're going to give it to the Christians in Jerusalem. We're going to give it to the original church. Now, why are they collecting an offering? Why are these churches on the northern part of the Mediterranean Sea collecting an offering for the Christians in Jerusalem, for the church in Jerusalem? The Bible doesn't say. I find the Bible so much more interesting than the conspiracy theories written about it. There are all these interesting little holes, and it's like, could you fill that in a little bit? That would be fabulous. So here's my educated guess why they were doing this. The first part of it is that you can piece together from some historical sources, in all likelihood there was a famine in that part of the world at that time. So that was probably a part of it. The second is that Jerusalem was a major city, and so it would have a disproportionate number of poor people in it, and so the church there would have a disproportionate number of poor people in it. And in fact, the early church was known for how it cared for the poor, how it cared for widows, and so it was very attractive. Uh, faith in Christ was very attractive to people in a hard situation. still is today. I've always wondered, though, if there might be a third reason that adds to the first two which is that in the startup of that church, in the excitement of the early days, a lot of them had sold their houses and fields to pay for the needs of people. Now, the Bible doesn't say. I'm just, this is an educated guess. But I've, always, I've, wondered, I've had, always wondered. I didn't come out of the womb wondering about this. But maybe over the last few years, I've always wondered if that was part of it. Now, now, now let, 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 let me be clear. I am not saying that what happened in Acts chapter 4 was wrong or bad. Clearly, it's what God wanted. When you read the verses around it, they were doing a God-honoring thing, a thing that God wanted. At the same time, it was a, it was a method. It was a method. And like any method, it could have unintended consequences. So it's possible that part of why they had to take an offering for the Christians in Jerusalem was an unintended consequence of doing the thing God wanted them to do. Again, it's an educated guess. I don't necessarily know. But it's interesting to note, how did Paul tell them to take up this offering, this collection to send? Did he tell them to sell fields and houses so they would have money for the collection? No, no. He told them at the beginning of the week to set aside a sum of money in keeping with their income. At the beginning of the week, set aside a sum of money proportional to your income, and that's going to be the offering we give to Jerusalem. He changed the method. It's a different method. In fact, it's a method more akin to what we still use today. It's a method. And the fact that he changed the method has always made me wonder if there was more conversation among the early Christians about methods that should be used to take up offerings. I don't know. Educated guess. I'll get to ask one day and I probably won't even care about it then. So what is the principle? What's the principle? We've talked enough about methods. Let's talk principle. What's the principle? 
The principle is, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. That's what I'd want you to leave with today, that each of you, me included, should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. In other words, God wants people to experience His grace. God wants you to experience His grace. God wants me to experience His grace. God wants all people to experience His grace. He wants your co-workers and your classmates and your neighbors and your friends and your enemies to experience His grace. And to see the clearest example of God's grace, don't look at me, don't look at this church, don't look at Acts chapter 4, look at Jesus. Fully God, fully human. The Bible says that though he was in very nature God, Jesus did not sit around in heaven sipping lemonade, that he came to earth, the God of the universe, wrapped himself in human flesh, moved into our neighborhood, walked on this earth like you and like me walk on this earth. And then he humbled himself further. He was willing to die, to submit to death, even death on a cross. And in doing so, he withstood the consequences of our rebellion against God. Just like Levites, like Barnabas for centuries, had offered sacrifices to make amends for human failures, Jesus offered a sacrifice. And Jesus was the sacrifice. He was the once and for all sacrifice. And then on the third day, he rose from the dead. His sacrifice was vindicated. His kingdom has begun. There is some Something in this world stronger than your failures. There is something in this world stronger than even death, and that's Jesus. He is God's grace to you. He is God's grace to me. He is God's grace because He provides for us everything that God requires. He is God's grace because He provides for us everything that God requires so that you and I can enter into eternal relationship with God. And we don't do that under our own power. We do that in Jesus' name. God wants you to experience His grace. God came to earth that you might experience His grace. But it doesn't just stop at that big picture level. God wants His grace to get down into every nook and cranny of your life. And so... God entrusts gifts to His children so that we might be carriers of His grace. God entrusts gifts to His children that we might be carriers of His grace. God wants people to experience His grace in various forms. In various forms. And actually, God has a plan for how He wants to do this how he wants people to experience his grace in various forms. And when you hear the plan here in a minute, you may think, mm, maybe God should have brainstormed that one a little bit longer, but this is the plan. The plan is you. The plan is me. We're the plan. Through committing to Christ, or if you ever decide to commit to Christ, you are reconciled to God eternally. You are God's child, and as God's child, we can see our lives on earth differently, that we are the stewards, we are the managers, we are the caretakers, we are the carriers of some part of God's grace that He has entrusted to us. For example, God is generous. 
And God has given many of us financial resources with which to be generous. God is welcoming, and God has given some of us a genuine desire to welcome people into God's family, to welcome people into God's presence. God teaches us, and He has given some of us skill in teaching others about the grace and truth of God. God confronts us, and He has given some of us just the right words of caution to say to a friend who is headed down the wrong path. God inspires, and God has gifted some of us to inspire others to turn our lives in God's direction. God cares, and God has given some of us a deep and empathetic ability to care for those who are struggling. God provides, and God has given some of us the ability to provide for spiritual and physical needs beyond our own. God encourages, and God has made some of us sons and daughters of encouragement, those who can encourage others when they fail, even when they fail spectacularly, and who can encourage people to take a scary step of faith when that's what needs to happen. In other words, as has been true since Acts chapter 4, Use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. So my, my wrap-up question, actually I'm going to say one more thing before my wrap-up question. So, so some, some years ago I was... Uh, preaching at, at another church, and when I finished the sermon, people applauded, probably because the sermon was over, in retrospect. And so in a moment of, of reflection, I was actually preaching on this passage, uh, in a moment of reflection, I stopped and said, um, did you applaud for the person who uh, said, who greeted you at the door and said good morning? Or did you applaud for the person who, who is taking care of your kid? Did, did you applaud for that? And because uh, that's a, after someone is kind to you, that's what you should do, right? Just sort of turn it back on them. That's uh, uh, I'm, I'm realizing things about myself as I share this example. But that's the question I ask. That's the question I ask in return. Because, I mean, because think about it. Who, Whose who's, uh, jerseys do we buy? Do we buy the people who score 40 points or do we buy the best defenders? Like, who do they talk a lot about on, on SportsCenter, if they even still have that as a show? Do, do they talk about the person who makes the game-winning shot or do they, do they talk about the people who played consistent defense the first three quarters? We talk about the first one. We talk about the one with the stats. We talk about the one who, who makes the splash. That's what we pay attention to. But that's a cultural value. You could imagine another culture that would care about different things. And so I said, well, let's just be sure we don't import that into our church family. Let's, let's be sure that we realize the person who does the sermon and the person who says hello at the door and the person who's taking care of the kids are doing the same thing. They're using a gift that God has given them to serve others. Now, culturally, we may esteem some of those higher or lower than others, but that's a cultural value. It's not a church value. It's not a Jesus value. 
Because what's the principle? Use whatever gift God has given you as a faithful steward of God's grace in its various forms. Use whatever gift God has given you to serve others as a faithful steward of God's grace in its various forms. So I use my gift, and you use your gift, and, and it's just as good. It's all, the, it's all the same because it's letting people taste God's grace in its various forms. I don't know if you know this, but like some people's favorite part about this church is not the sermons. Actually, majority of the, <laughs> of the churches is that feels that way because we're each just doing our own part. We're each using whatever gift God has given us. The person who gives money for the offering, the person who collects the money in the offering, the person who takes care of the kid, the person who teaches the Bible study, we're all doing the same thing, using a gift God has given us so that people would experience God's grace in its various forms. Okay, so here's my wrap-up question. What grace do you receive from followers of Jesus? And what grace do or can you give to others? What grace do or have you received from followers of Jesus? How have you benefited from experiencing God's grace in its various forms? And how can or do you give God's grace, that grace to others? Because God wants you to receive his grace, both from others, but most of all through Jesus. And God wants you to give that grace to others. Now, we have a number of teams at the church through which you can do that. You can always go to the info table and pick up the sheet that says share. It has a lot of opportunities to serve. Next week, we'll start talking about summer serve, which is the summer is coming up. Don't know if you knew that. People, I don't know if you knew those, travel a lot during the summer. And so we always recruit reinforcements to go and help in the kids' area throughout the summer. That's a way to start serving. In the fall, sometime in probably August, we are going to move to three services. And part of why I'm really excited about that is it's going to make new people step up and lead. It's going to make new people step up and serve because we're not going to do it by just overtaxing the people who are already serving. It's going to allow new people to do that, people who are not currently serving. I think that's fabulous. But my point in all this is, let us, let us look deeply within who God has made us to be. Let us identify the, the gifts that God has given us and the ways that those gifts could help people experience God's grace in its various forms. And as you and I find ways to use those gifts to serve the other people in these circles, this is the fun part it actually begins to change how we serve the world around us. Because in the end, that's what we want to do. We want to serve the people around us. We want to serve our neighbors. We want to serve our friends. We want to serve our coworkers. We want to do that. Historically, those muscles start getting exercised by serving the other people in these circles. So I don't know where that intersects with your life, but wherever it does, just take the next step. Let's pray together. Let me give you a chance in the, this quiet moment to pray, to talk with God about whatever that He's stirring in your heart or in your mind.
we remember the words of Peter. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Just talk to God. Lord, I thank you for all the great examples of generosity that we have seen in our lifetime, and, but in the Bible as well. I thank you for the example of those early Christians who in a world without social security, in a world without relief programs, sold their houses, sold their fields. sold their real estate to serve and meet the needs of others so that people could experience your grace in its various forms. Thank you for examples we've seen in our friends and in our uh, fellow church folks here or at whatever church we're a part of. Ways that People who follow Jesus have decided to live differently and to be generous in a way that they would not have been without you. But most of all, Lord, we see you as the one who is generous above all others. You are generous in ways we cannot fathom. Out of your generosity, you created this world. Out of your generosity, you came into this world as Jesus and died and resurrected so that in your generosity, you might redeem this world. By your generosity, your arms to us are open wide. So I pray today we would not run away from your generosity, but we would run into your open arms that we would embrace you as the generous God who already loves us. We make that prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.